منافق تخسر شيء وانا مليت من عشرة نفسي Hi, I'm Lina Sergiatar, and welcome to Belongings, a podcast where we talk about home and have conversations about the places that create, shape, and sometimes break us. everyone. Welcome to this episode of Belongings. I'm so excited to share my conversations today. The first with my friend Rose Previtt. She is an award-winning restaurateur and founder of Compass Rose and Maidan, two acclaimed restaurants and Michelin-starred restaurants in D.C. You'll hear so much more about her work and her other ventures, and there are many in the episode. What I loved about our conversation is how Rose articulates the idea of belonging, not just through the different flavors of home that she She's cultivated and through her travels, but also in the details of hospitality that she actually builds out in the experience that you have in any of her restaurants at one of her tables. And there's a great story about a certain suede jacket. Can a jacket make you belong or should you stand out? Rose does both and beautifully. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My second conversation is with Mazin, a brilliant young man in Istanbul. Mazin is a Kerem House graduate, and he's originally from Yemen, traveled to Morocco with his family, and then to Turkey, where we met him several years ago when he began attending studios at Kerem House. He's so articulate about his journey and about all the things that he's learned and what home means to him. I hope you enjoy that conversation as well. Hello, Rose, and welcome to Belongings. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to see you today. Before we get started, I want to just tell a little bit about you to everybody here. Rose Previtt is a self-proclaimed Lebanese grandmother at heart. She is one of the country's top restaurateurs and entrepreneurs. She's a cultural icon in the culinary world, winning Michelin stars and James Beard nods for her groundbreaking restaurants, Compass Rose and Maidan in D.C. I'm so excited to have you on Belongings today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the very kind introduction. I appreciate it. So we're going to be getting into a lot of food and memories and your journey across, you know, the Middle East and the world and to your journeys into your amazing restaurants that you have. I'm so lucky to have been a guest at your table in Maidan and Compass Rose many times and taste your amazing food and be part of your culinary hosting experience that we want to talk about. But I want to get into the roots of this background that you have that you bring out into your restaurants and into all of your guests' experience of your work and your food. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood home and the influence of home cooking on you? Well, thank you for asking. Um, food has definitely been a very important part of every day of my entire life. There was an extreme emphasis on, on cooking and coming together at the family table. I think a lot of families probably did that, but I think there was an extra layer in my childhood, which was my mother, who grew up in a very tight-knit Lebanese community in Detroit, was aware that she was raising me and my brothers in a small town in Ohio. My parents met in Detroit, actually, while they were both at Wayne State University. My dad is from New Jersey, and my mom was living at home and going to Wayne State, and they met, but he ended up getting a job as a professor at this small school in this small town in Ohio. So just an hour south of Toledo, where there's still, like, I have a lot of my Lebanese cousins, still a very big Middle Eastern community, but I um, kind of just grew up just far enough out of it that we seemed very different where I grew up. And so this family table and the cooking not only was like an act of love and, and family, but it was also of identity and like a fear that if it wasn't constantly repeated, that we would forget our roots or our heritage. And so that was given to us through food. And my mom, you know, practiced what she was preaching around the table by um, actually starting a catering company from our home. She didn't have, you know, any knowledge of how to start a business or anything like that, but she cooked and she wanted to cook for the community. And so we started making 
Lebanese food, like in mass for weddings, graduation parties, whatever it would be. And we just did that from our house and I was her main assistant. And so I've been, you know, making tabbouleh for like 300 since I was 10 and, you know, things like that. And she did eventually, and I'm very proud of her, you know, got a restaurant later in life, but um, it started truly in our tiny little kitchen and it formed the basis of my restaurants years later, where we are trying to explain culture and, and heritage to people through food. I love that. I love that concept of you, like helping your mom and her catering business. And tabbouleh for 300 is a big feat. So yeah, you learn it the hard way. The carpal tunnel will set in eventually. (laughs) We've all done it for generations. So I was really glad that we did do it that way. And I think there was a pride in the food that helped us explain kind of who we were to people. So. So you mentioned Detroit and you mentioned where your Lebanese side of the family originally is from. And so Part of this podcast is asking every guest to draw a map of home. You chose the home in outside of Detroit. I'd love for you to walk us through your map and your drawing and tell us the story of the, where you belong. Well, yes, my drawing that looks like a six-year-old drew it, so I'm glad you all can't see it. But if I was walking you through it, if you can imagine, or if you've been to Detroit, there's a number of just small little brick houses that were built in the 1950s when a lot of people left Detroit City and moved to suburbs like my family went to Royal Oak from downtown Detroit. So the home of my sito that I grew up going to my grandmother's house was in Royal Oak. And there's this long driveway you pull into and immediately on your right, as long as it's nice out, you know, for the summer months. There's just a huge patch of mint that, of course, we used in all of our cooking. But it's the smell of the mint that would hit you first, like driving down the driveway. So I'll always associate that smell with my grandmother's house. And after she passed away, my aunt and uncle moved into the house. So I still go to this home for all of my holidays to visit my family and sleep on this couch. This was always since I've been a kid where I got to sleep. There's a couch inside of a big picture window. So a little brick house and a big picture window. And there was the living room right inside. And I choose to sleep on the couch there while everyone else sleeps in a bedroom because I love the smells and the warmth of this space. And so if you sleep there, I'm the first to smell the coffee made in the morning, to smell the lamb and the eggs being fried and buttered together. These smells and then the voices that are, you know, wake me up, bring me such joy. I'm like going to cry because <laughs> I'm like, homesick, homesick. But anyway, sorry, Lena. <laughs> um, they just make me feel as safe as humanly possible. And that is just food and family and all of it packed into this little house. I love that. And we, we are going to share your drawing if you let us with the world because <laughs> I love your drawing. It is really beautiful. And the word, like when you, when you talk about the smell of the mint, the smell of the coffee, the smell of the lamb and the butter, it really is bringing back memories for myself as well. And what, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning talking about feeling different when you were in Ohio. And then I read in one of your interviews talking about your mom making your sandwiches for lunch on the pita bread. And I can relate to that as well because I was really embarrassed by my dad's sandwiches that he would make for me that would be like kind of like smelly and take it to school and not felt like I didn't have like the normal peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and kind of the scentless sandwiches of my friends when I was growing up in a very small town in upstate New York. And so like that idea of feeling other and then feeling belonging, I sense that through the same kinds of stories you're talking about. No, the same connection. Yeah, I do often talk about because it was the one place like you have your food at home, but then when it gets sent with you to school because God forbid we ever bought a school lunch. That was like not acceptable (laughs) to my parents ever. So of course now do I appreciate a homemade lunch? Of course. But back then I was hiding it. I mean, I had a whole system where I would take a bite and then quickly put it under the table (laughs) so they wouldn't see the pita bread. And I changed schools. And I think, you know, an important moment was in the sixth grade. Some of the notes you gave me about what we're going to talk about today triggered this memory. Sixth grade being a very hard year for everyone, right? That's like 12 years old. Puberty is happening. And I had to change schools that year. So it was particularly hard. And that was prime time of wanting to fit in more than anything, right? Like that's when you just, you're so conscious of yourself. And so, yes, having a smelly locker and a pita bread sandwich was the last thing I wanted. But there was no mercy. There was no white bread in my house. There was no peanut butter. Like this is this is what it was going to be. And, you know, that same year, to point out how much I wanted to belong, there was a thing going on in rural Ohio at the time. I don't know if it ever got to you in upstate New York, because we're probably about the same age. But these, like, leather jackets, they were, like, they were suede, and they were brown, and they were oversized, because this is, like, the grunge era. And everybody had them. And I wanted one so badly, because 
we had to wear school, I had uniforms and the only, you know, so we already looked alike in our uniforms, but then for whatever reason, we hated the uniforms, but wanted the same jacket. And I just got within a few days that like to fit in for fall, you had to have this jacket. And my mother was adamant. It's too expensive. You can't have it. And she's like, on top of it, these girls look like a pack of squirrels on the playground. She goes, I see all these girls. They look like squirrels. You're not going to look like that. Christmas morning, I get this big box and I think, oh, she gave in to the brown jacket. And when I opened it, there was a oversized suede jacket in the box, but it was forest green. And, you know, I was disappointed and I'm like, mom, really, I know you didn't quite get the memo here, but like, why the green one? And she said, look, I understand your need to belong. I got you the jacket. She's like, but you need to remember you're not like everybody else. (laughs) You need to be proud of that. And you need to stand out from the crowd. You were raised to stand out from the crowd. <laughs> so don't try to be like everybody else. And I've never forgotten it. And I'm crying at nine o'clock in the morning. But anyway, yes. And I mean, honestly, and just to talk about your fashion style, I always admire your fashion style and your, it's so effortless and it always is very unique and you do stand out, especially when you're running around your restaurant, you know, and it's, it's packed and you're like completely, you know, dressed up and in heels. I always admire that. Well, thank you very much. Again, an early lesson that really has stayed with me from fashion to the symbolic nature of, you know, just being proud of being different. And yeah, it stuck with me. So thank you for listening. I want to like fast forward a little bit. You're married to David Green mm-hmm. and, you know, amazing journalist, amazing NPR journalist. And, you know, he is also has adventure in his heart. I think maybe that's probably what brought you both together. <laughs> but you're living in Russia now. And I want you to talk a little bit about your life there and how, you know, your culinary journeys through the region began. And as you began to collect things beyond your Lebanese heritage and your exploration, which is such a huge part part of your work today. Yes, it was a really special time. We lived in Russia from 2009 to 2012 while David was a foreign correspondent there. And while Russia was not high on my list of places I wanted to live, David and I do love adventure and we were just kind of ready to try something new and live abroad together. And so it afforded us a very cool expat experience where we got to travel all of the time, I think about 30 countries in three years. And of course, being us, all those travels involve food in some way. And, you know, looking back at the end of our journey, we realized most of our favorite memories were associated with food in some way. And so, you know, at the end of that trip, well, the end of 2011, I knew we were going to go back to the States in 2012. And I started thinking about what I was going to do with my life. And, you know, I really knew that I always wanted to open a restaurant, but I also always thought that would happen like later in life. But it just hit me at the end of this three years of really like soul searching and thinking about my life and not working. Actually, I couldn't get a visa. I couldn't get the paperwork. So I really just traveled and supported David's work, which is not something I had ever done before. And it gave me time to think. And I just knew that later was now. And I wanted to open the restaurant when I got back. And then the restaurant, Compass Rose, my first restaurant opened in 2014, That menu was all literally our food memories on a menu. All the things we had collected, the experiences, the stories, and the food that we associated with it, we put on the first menu with a special focus on the Republic of Georgia, which was a country I was very pleased to discover living in in Russia and ashamed I didn't know more about it before we got there. But the food's amazing. The wine's amazing. And the people are, I I think I told you this before, they always remind me of Lebanese people because they're so hospitable. And so I felt so comfortable in this country far from Lebanon, just because of the hospitality and the love of food and and welcoming guests. And so it's a very special place that influenced Compass Rose very much. I love that story. And I love the food at Compass Rose and the Georgian influence is just amazing to have and like to bring it back to the U.S. and to bring it back to everybody to discover on their own. That's such a gift. After Compass Rose, you created Maidan, which won a Michelin star in 2019. As I said before, I'm lucky to have been a guest and Kerem Foundation to be a guest multiple times in your restaurant. It's really a magical experience. For people who don't know Maidan, can you tell us a little bit about the concept of it? Of course. Restaurant was opened in 2017, and it's based around a central open fire. So it is very unique in that we have a very limited kitchen, and most of your food is coming off of the the live fire that you see as soon as you walk in the door. And that is something I was searching for. I wanted fire very much, and I was looking for a space to do it, and that's when I found the building that is now Maidan. But I also wanted it to be a tribute to the women that taught me to cook, and that's my mom and her sisters, so my Lebanese side of the family. and. 
it's ancient food from an ancient part of the world. And we thought cooking it in its original way was the greatest homage that we could give it and serve justice (laughs) to the food through that authenticity. And so it is from generally what is considered the Middle Eastern region. But I like to say, if you think of the the region from Tangiers to Tehran and from Batumi to Beirut, you kind of have our, our main area of inspiration. And, you know, that's the region that we represent there. And it's a mix of family recipes, recipes that we came to while traveling. I knew how influential travel has been to my palate and to my understanding of, of food and culture. So I took our opening chefs traveling to five countries before we opened Morocco, Tunisia, Lebanon, Turkey, and Georgia. And it was a very epic five-week trip where we just cooked with grandmothers. Like we, our hashtag was cooking with grandmas. We went to homes, especially with home cooks, because that's in all of these countries who are the best cooks, right? In any country, but especially in this region, um, you know, a lot of the women are, are cooking in the kitchens while the men are cooking in the restaurants. And a lot of them made that point to me very often that the food was much better at home than in the restaurants. And uh, they were kind enough to invite us into their kitchens and the product is, is mine on. Did you find a difficulty in actually recording and collecting these recipes and documenting how to actually make grandma cooking? Because I find that one of the biggest challenges, especially, I mean, I, I guess it's probably any culture, but, you know, Syrian culture, if you ask your mom or your grandma how you make something, they'll, they, their recipe is just so random and they, nobody really measures. So how did you go get through that to like actually be able to produce these kinds of recipes in your restaurant? Oh, yes, it was a struggle because your experience is exactly what we had over and over again. My own family, it's hard enough. We are actually working on the Maidan cookbook, which hopefully comes out next year. And I have had to put my mom and my aunts on the phone a hundred times. They've gotten in fights, like arguing over whose recipe is better. I mean, it's been a journey. So, yes, we did that throughout our travels in um, 2017. It, it is just a lot of repeat questions you keep asking. You keep watching. They're very sweet, but don't understand why you need to know um, the exact measurements. But we we just keep trying. And then, of course, it's trial and error when we get back to the States because, of course, too, the ingredients are different. So you have to to change it a little bit anyway. But we've had roadside stands, you know, street vendors who are making kebabs on the side of the road. We've asked them for recipes and they were also very confused, but very willing to help. It just takes time. Exactly. So something that people might not know about who know Karam Foundation in the last, you know, 10 years, one of our first projects, actually our first project was a cookbook. It was a community cookbook and I created it with our co-founder and it was called Ramadan Spreads. And we tried to actually get all of the communities here in Chicago, like the Arab American community, their recipes. And it was so hard. I, I, the, one of the recipes that I was responsible for was Muhammara and that is a roast red pepper dip for with walnuts and that recipe was so hard because Muhammad the way you make it is you just keep on adding you add the pomegranate molasses you add some more salt you add some more of this you add and you keep on tasting 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 until it's right and so when you come to the end you're like what did I put in this thing there's no way you can actually measure but when I had to force myself to actually go through the measurements over and over it became something that we could go back to and you make it every time for it to taste proper and it's a gift, right? Because we don't want to lose those recipes, but you really have to be patient. And, you know, we are, we're working on it. It's been really fun. I discovered a lot about the kibinai recipe between my grandfather's side of the family and my grandmother's entirely different. So it's been a really fun process. And and at the end, I think it'll be a gift to the family and to everyone else to have all of this recorded. Well, I can't wait to have the Maidan cookbook. That's going to be awesome. In advance, I know you've offered some assistance and I appreciate it. Yes. (laughs) I talk all the time that I want to bring back the cookbook because when we did it, we self-published. It was the only way we could even do it. And we had basically the people who gave us recipes bought it and that's how we covered the cost. But uh-huh. then it became so expensive. Like for instance, people still ask me, can I have a copy? But if you want to make one copy, it's so much. And so it's just sitting there and it needs a revamp. So going back to Maidan. So for me, the experience of walking into the restaurant and having, seeing the fire and um, experiencing the food being cooked on the fire and watching the food being cooked on the fire, everything is transparent to the entire restaurant. It is almost like a theater in terms of like how things, how it's being cooked, how everything's being prepared and having that hearth in the middle of the restaurant. There's just so many layers of meaning to like fire as an element, fire as the hearth, as the home and really constraining yourself in the way that you are cooking. 
and the actual name of Maidan, which means square. I want to just ask you about the name of other than, you know, this gathering place, which is kind of the concept of square and, you know, the, the timeline of, you know, opening up Compass Rose and Maidan and working in the region and about like, you know, around the region in this last decade, which is really has been defined by the Arab Spring and the struggles really in the region and a little bit beyond in terms of the struggles for democracy, even in our own country, struggles for democracy, struggles for freedom. Do you see a relationship between that and the idea of the restaurant in terms of building out a bigger case around community, about that struggle that you witness when you visit these kinds of countries and versus, you know, the intimate spaces of the kitchen and home cooking? No, I think that's an amazing question. To give you just really quickly the background of where I learned the word Maidan is was actually in Ukraine when David and I were living in Russia. We went very early in our time there to Kiev and everyone kept saying, meet at Maidan, meet at Maidan. This is years before the current conflict. I mean, like ironically, I just came to know the word and then I realized traveling in the region, it's used in North Africa, it's used in Iran, it's used in Eastern Europe, in Georgia, in the capital of Tbilisi, they have a mind. I'm like, what is this word? Even in Hindi and in Farsi, they use it and it always means the same thing with a different pronunciation. So that was so powerful to me because the region that I just said is so diverse and so different, but yet you have this common word that means so much than, like you said, than just square. To me, it clearly started to mean the bringing together of people, but for mourning, for celebration, in many cases for rebellion, especially in Kiev at the time. And now people are hearing Maidan in the context of the current conflict. So it's, it's also been tied to, you know, adversity and joy at the same time. So to me, the kitchen and the restaurant is also that. I always wanted people to come into the space for celebration when they're sad for mourning. And sometimes, you know, especially being in Washington, D.C., there's been many cases for rebellion (laughs) that have, you know, hopefully started at my bar or around a table there. It's a very powerful place. So, you know, one thing with Maidan that ties to the community is that we, knowing the American conception of the Middle East, it is always conflict-oriented. And I think we experienced, of course, we were traveling during a more peaceful time. There was no active the Arab Spring was not happening in 2017, except in Syria, where we couldn't we couldn't go. Obviously, we haven't been able to go to cook. We actually ended up cooking with a number of Syrian refugees, even before I met you, in Turkey on that trip in, in 2017. So to get the Syrian influence in the restaurant, we learned it in Turkey. So there's, that was already part of the story. You know, we had very little Turkish food at the beginning because we only cooked with Syrians while we were there and have a little bit of a bias for Syrian food. So that was what, you know, originally really defined the menu at Maidan. And then, you know, the, the whole feeling of the fire and the tables being close together. There's even communal tables because we wanted to show people the hospitality that we were given in these countries that some Americans are afraid of or afraid to go to or would be afraid of the people. You know, we met strangers. We were welcomed into strangers homes. We never hesitated. And we wanted to bring that sentiment back to Americans to say like, here, look at these people through food and not through conflict. Like there's a whole nother side. Um, and Maidan is very much meant to convey that message to people and to show them culture through food in a different way of thinking about places that they only know about from the news when there's a, a war or some terrible bombing or something like that. And I think it's been able, we've done that a little bit, I hope, you know. Absolutely. That's so beautiful. And I didn't know that that came from you, your trip to Ukraine. So that's, that's an amazing fact that I, that that word travels so far. And it is such a powerful word, the place of gathering. So another piece that I want to go to in terms of the experience of being in your restaurants and your spaces beyond the actual food, it's walking through an alleyway to get to Maidan. The idea of Compass Rose being kind of inspired by, you know, a journey through a souk, that your checks come in in books and guidebooks or books of poetry. I really can see the concept of design, like visual design, really influential textiles, the plates, every single detail is very well thought out in terms of adding on layers of experience for your guests. I wanted to ask you about that concept of design and creativity and how that plays into when you're thinking about creating a restaurant or a cookbook or your next venture, how do these other elements of design play in? Thank you for asking because people don't ask it. They always want to just talk about the food and it is really important. 
But thank you for noticing all of that because I do think the design is equally important. And I do think it's coming from the perspective of trying to create an experience for the guest well beyond just a meal. And I think both restaurants intend to do that. I think it works because I get my highest compliment that people give me is that they felt transported once they enter the space. And that doesn't just happen through food. That happens through the space. And so both spaces are intentionally like a little hard to find there. You have to get a little bit lost to find them. So we're already setting you on an emotional journey. You've already had a feeling before you've walked in the door, right? And how you react to that getting lost. It's very interesting to see how people experience, you know, there's no sign. We're down a dark alley. Um, Compass Rose is in a house, so it looks a little bit more like a house. So it's sometimes hard to find. People don't think it's a restaurant, but that was very in- intentional. And the pieces in the space, they're all repurposed. We use a lot of old things. Both buildings are 130 years old, so they have a lot of history themselves. I really believe in energy being in used pieces. And so we have salvaged a lot of things. You'd be shocked in Maidan, how much came from from an architectural salvage store, not new pieces. And I really think, you know, that's the way I was taught. It was like cooking with love, but we're, we're like cooking with love. We're, you know, bringing the energy of a lot of good people, I think, into the space. So you feel something the minute you walk in the door of both places and then you have an experience. It's, I, I joke sometimes it's like dinner and a show because, you know, you're watching the open fire, you're watching the chefs cook your food and it just automatically adds to the experience. You don't just walk away talking about the food. You talk about the fire, the lighting, the bar. And we did, you know, we thought about every little bit of it. I carried the fabric home <laughs> from our trip in 2017. That is now the bar top. If you ever sit at our bar, there's this beautiful beautiful fabrics under resin, but I picked those out in markets and I carried them back. So I do think you kind of transfer energy and love into things. I really do believe that. It might sound a little hocus pocus, but I think that's why the spaces are so warm. And I do think that's why people feel as if they've, they've left for a minute. And again, in an intense city like Washington, sometimes you really need to be somewhere else. And if my restaurants can do that to you, even if it's just for two hours, then I think we've succeeded. <laughs> no, absolutely. You have succeeded. And I love that. And I do believe that energy like pours through in the pieces that you make and designed makes the whole experience complete. You told me a story once about the poetry books that you get the bill in when when the guest has to pay at the end of their meal and it comes inside a book and the books are all like you know random poetry books that you've collected like older books and you told me about a special guest and his experience with the books. Can you tell us that story? Oh, I did tell Tony to tell you that. We just, we were all so moved by so many of the poets from the region, like Hafiz from Iran. And you've got, you know, Khalil Gibran was a huge part of my life growing up. My parents had a whole love story centered around Khalil Gibran poems. So we just thought it would be cool to have those as check presenters and just we're able to get a lot of them used, right? Because so many people these days are using audiobooks. So we got a bunch of used poetry books and we're even surprised at how much people connected with them. We would find people reading them to each other at the end of the meal, leaving notes in the books. It became very powerful. But I also told the servers, if the guests ever asked for the book, always give it to them. There's no price. Like it means those words were meant to travel away with that person for whatever reason. (laughs) Again, my energy, you know, theories. One night, just a few weeks after we opened, a gentleman came in by himself. No one knew him. We were all a little worried. He was like a critic of some kind. He carried himself that way. But he was one of the first people to ask if he could take a book. And, you know, as instructed, the manager said, yes, of course, please take it. There's no, there's no cost. And then, um, you know, two days later, he came back with a gift bag that had two books in it. One was a new copy of that very book. And then another work by the same author. And he just said, it meant so much to me that you, you gave me the copy of of the Hafiz poems. He's like, it's a copy. It's an edition that I had been looking for and I couldn't find the words were so meaningful. And I just, I appreciated it so much. I wanted to give you back another book. And it was a different set of poems by Hafiz. And there was a beautiful section on hospitality and welcoming people in. And he said, please check out page three. And, you know, he had, he had set aside the part about hospitality and just explained that that's exactly how he felt in our place and that we were doing, you know, what the poem said to do. And it just meant so much. We were also exhausted. It was like the first month that we were open and just knowing that the words did travel and they meant something to someone was just like our whole purpose actually, you know, it made sense and it mattered for that one moment. The rule still stands. If you want it, I will say a lot of people don't ask and they just take it, but that's okay too. (laughs) As long as the words get out into the world. 
So on top of the fact of spreading the energy and spreading the region into the world, and also you're spreading poetry and ancient poets, it's really, really beautiful what you're doing. And I know that the energy always comes back. Also, we believe in that too. So like, that's just such an amazing like ripple effect of your work. Thank you. It's a very important part of it. So that means a lot. Thank you. I wanted to turn to the pandemic. I know that the last period has been a big struggle for restaurants who were probably the industries that be hit the hardest during this time. And I know that obviously you have come through it. You have, you know, retained your staff. You've done such amazing things during the pandemic. And now that we can see, say a little bit looking back in hindsight, I want to ask you, what kinds of decisions did you make early on uh, that you know now were crucial to surviving the crisis? Well, yes, Lena, you're determined to make me cry all morning. Um, that it was a very hard time and we are very grateful that we've both restaurants have come out of it still kicking. And all of that is due to the support of our community because if it hadn't been for people right in Washington still buying our takeout food and, and dealing with our weird, you know, learning how to use a delivery service, we would probably not be here. So I am eternally grateful to them. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful to having a great business partner. You really know, you know, who's who during a crisis <laughs> and everyone shows their true colors. And, and the fact that he and I, you know, were just went into a problem solving mode and did it so well. I'm really thankful for him. And, you know, we did make all of our decisions together. Like you said, the absolute hardest part was not knowing. So when the people that you lead are looking at you for answers and you don't have them, it's just the most defeating thing as a leader <laughs> to just say, I don't know repeatedly. And I can't even pay anybody to tell me because literally no one knows. It was just such a helpless time. Some very practical things we did though, um, our managers, Oh, we have some of the most wonderful managers and we held on to them. We obviously could not hold on to all of our staff. And another insanely hard day was having to furlough, you know, 50 people, all mainly from what we call front of house, right? So the bar back servers, bartenders, we were only able to hold on to a few of our front of house employees, but our managers were like, no, you can't go anywhere. <laughs> Stay with us. And we just figured out a way to pay them um, because we knew it would be over one day and we still wanted them on our team leading us through this crisis and leading us out of it. Um, so I'm very glad that we did that. And I think coming, you know, when we, we reopened, it was a very challenging time and they were ready for it. And we were ready because we had a strong management team. And I'm really glad we were able to keep our kitchens almost entirely intact. We furloughed almost no one from either kitchen. We just made sure, because especially with a lot of undocumented folks in the kitchen and things like that, you know, we knew these are people that would not have the same services or assistance from the government. It was really important for us to keep them paid as long as possible. And so we were able to do that. And I, I'm very proud of the fact that our kitchens were very staff-wise, very much not affected by the pandemic. And then, you know, we were able to work with World Central Kitchen and Jose Andreas um, in the very early days. We piloted the, the Feed the Cities program, which, again, for people that make food as their love language, in a time of crisis, we all know my mother, the first thing we did was bring food to a family that was in, in trouble or had experienced a death or, you know, all of a sudden we're like, we have to feed people, but we can't let people inside. And so we started working with Jose's team to initiate how we would pack these little meals and how they would be transported to elderly people who couldn't leave their homes. And it was for us very, you know, rewarding because we felt like we were helping our city when we felt helpless in every other way to do anything. And, you know, I'm very appreciative of them because they realized it was a way to pay restaurants so that we had some extra income and that made a big difference too. So those are probably the top things that I'm, I'm glad that we did during a very terrible time, <laughs> terrible time. I mean, it's very inspirational because you were able to, you know, keep the business side of thing running as much as you could at the time. And, and also you found a way to give back to the community. So thank you for all of that and all of your service to the community in this time. Really was our, our pleasure and, and selfishly very healing for us. So, but thank you. <laughs> So turning towards more hopeful times, you've talked a little bit about, you know, before you opened Compass Rose of taking this tour, the culinary tour and opening Maidan and taking these culinary tours with your, with your team and your chefs. And I heard about your kebab tour. I'd love for you to tell us about this kebab tour, about the things that you're bringing to different communities in Lebanon and your, your travels in Iraq, as well as what's coming next. Cause I know there's lots of really exciting things happening on the horizon. Oh, thank you for asking. I, you can tell that travel and food are my favorite things to talk about. And so you're hitting all of them. Thank you so much. We do continue this tradition. Obviously, COVID stopped us for a year. But by 2021, we were trying to 
safely travel a little bit because it is so important. Not only is it just so inspiring and from a creative standpoint, from a human standpoint, but it's necessary. I mean, it's truly necessary. Our food is authentic and it has to come from experiences. And to me, especially having people in the restaurant who did not grow up in a Middle Eastern home, I feel like it's soul food, right? It's my soul food. I know it's yours. It's like, but it's because it's connected to just what we started with. It's connected to home. It's connected to family. And that's what I want people to feel in the restaurant. So if you didn't have that growing up, it's very important for me to bring my staff to these countries to actually experience what I experienced growing up. It's very, very important. So, and I, always so grateful. A lot of people come to work for us because they want to learn about other cultures and they want to learn about other food. So within, I will scrape every dollar from the bottom of the bucket for the rest of my life to take people traveling to the region. And we are, you know, in COVID times, Mike and I, my business partner, we just, I think, channeled our anxiety into new projects because we didn't know it. Otherwise, we just lose it. So there's going to be an end and we're going to do new things. And one of them is a new casual concept called Tavla Kirby Club that I could explain the name later. Um, but it's a casual version of Maidan and we're going to be opening it up in Virginia this fall. So that's very exciting. And we hope to open a couple in the region. We needed a restaurant to do more fast casuals type of dining, right? Like you can still sit down and be served, but you can grab and go delivery and takeout were things that obviously during COVID were essential and people got used to. Compass Rose and Maidan really can't support that. So we wanted a space that could still provide for our guests. A lot of them now don't work in their offices in DC anymore. They stay in Virginia and work and we wanted to be able to, to go to them. So that's one of the upcoming exciting projects. But to do that, our executive chef Omar is Egyptian and has a very Levantine, you know, style background, just like I do. But this restaurant is focused on kebabs. And we realized that there's actually, to be very honest, historically, it is considered that Turkey is the capital of the kebab. So we went to Turkey um, and stayed mainly in the South. I already knew about some of the South from visiting um, the Quran house in Rahanli. I knew that there's a food region I wanted to go back to. So we centered our trip around, you know, this, the areas of Turkey that are influenced by Syria. And then ones that are very historic, like in Gaziantep, very historically Turkish. And we learned so much when we ate kebabs every day. And I I still have not lost the weight I gained on that trip, but we did five days of deep kebab research and it was a cool, cool experience and it'll all be reflected in, in Taolo when it opens. And then I also got the chance to go to Iraqi Kurdistan with my husband. I was not able to bring staff on that trip, but for me, it could not have been more educational. I am ashamed to tell you, I didn't know as much as I should have about the different Kurdish groups from Turkey, Iran, Iraq. I learned so much and I ate so many beautiful things and as always welcomed with amazing hospitality. And then, you know, I going to Lebanon in a couple of weeks. I go every year. Um, our executive chef at Maidan Darnell, uh, Thomas went with me last year and cooked in the mountains with a dear chef friend of ours, Bethany Katie. And he came back inspired and with new menu items. And this year, David and I are going for the wine harvest because we started also a COVID inspiration, a wine company called Go There Wines, where we work um, with a Syrian refugee winemaker named Abdallah Rishi, an amazing human being. He works with our good friend, Eddie Chami. They have a winery called Mercedes sell wines, but they partnered with us at Go There uh, to create a couple wines that are available at gothere.com. Um, it can be sent all over the United States, or you can drink them at Compass Rose and Maidan, but we are going to go harvest some grapes for next year's vintage. And so I'm very excited to get there. Um, September's a gorgeous time to be in Lebanon. There's manual labor involved, but I'm trying to work off those kebabs. So it's probably a good thing that I go out and pick some grapes. <laughs> That's amazing. And I'm very excited for all of these new ventures. And we're going to be at, we'll add all the links to everything when we post this episode. So before we go into our rapid fire questions and give a close to this conversation, I wanted to talk about your trip to Kerem House. In 2019, you were very gracious to go with your team and with David to Kerem House in Rayhande, which is right on the border with Syria and southern Turkey. And it's our innovation community space that we have to support the community and support young people. I would love for you to talk to us about your experience there, how it was to cook with the women 
women there. And what did you learn from the experience and from cooking with the refugee women? Oh, my gosh. It, I mean, to say it was life changing is really not an exaggeration. For David and I, we were just so impressed and inspired by your team there on the ground, by the kids, by their families. I mean, it was truly just a magical experience. And I'm so glad we were able to do it before COVID shut down the world a few months later. And we think so fondly back to that week. And speaking of home, you all welcomed us in the most amazing way we felt at home within minutes. We were taken care of so well. And, you know, cooking with the kids was great. We had kind of done an exchange, I know you know, where we made some American dishes and then everyone made Syrian food for us. And it was just, it was beautiful to see not only the kids' creativity, but yes, the moms came in, especially for the harder dishes. Moms got called in, which was so fun to learn from them. And my husband, being a journalist, was able to speak to the students who are working on the newspaper. He was beyond inspired by them, especially with the conditions in Turkey for journalism and what everyone has been through to sit there and be so inspired by the press and the power of the press and everyone, you know, understanding how vitally important it is to democracy. And, you know, he could have spent endless hours talking to the students. And so they had a really great time together. Dave is better at journalism than cooking. So we kind of like sent him off to talk to the kids as much as possible. Um, but for music and hospitality, we just left with smiles on our faces and a longing to go back, very truly. The meals that we ate were amazing. The ones cooked for us, the ones ordered for us. We were taken around to try some restaurants that were also a wonderful, so much kanafe. I mean, I ate so much dessert. <laughs> Let me just tell you. Um, we can't wait to go back. It sounds like Rehanle for sure, the kanafe. Oh, so much. But I mean, just, you know, and I don't have to tell probably anyone listening how inspiring everyone is is their stories, their vulnerability and sharing their stories with us was so appreciated. And we learned there's just so much to be grateful for. And if, you know, on our hardest day, some of these students much younger than us have been through so much more and are still smiling and hopeful for the future and are giving back to their community in ways that, you know, so many of our peers in America don't take the time to do. And so, you know, we left wanting to be better people for the people that we met. So thank you for letting us go. Come to Karam House Istanbul, where we have also a big kitchen ready for you to come with your team and make some food. So we're going to go into some rapid fire questions. And the first question I have for you is, what is belonging to you? Belonging to me, kind of like home, I guess, is where you feel safe, right? And who you feel safe with. It doesn't have to be a roof over your head. And I always think of my husband as my home. Wherever David and I are, is it feels like home to me. I love that. So the second question is, can you complete this sentence? Home is where? Oh, yes. Home is where David is. If you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? Well, I have a little box that was given to me by our Russian friends as a going away present. It's a lacquered box. And I do have some of my most important trinkets in it. It's where my passport lives when it's not in use. Some jewelry, my grandmother's jewelry. There's a little bit of dried rosemary from my second date with David. That was a very important part of our living our lives together. So the dried rosemary from that date is in there. A few of my most treasured family photos are in there. And so I would just grab the box and most of what I need would be there. What's one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? Well, while I know it's easier said than done, I would say something along the lines of don't worry about fitting in. Be your authentic self. And the ones who understand you and get you are the ones that matter anyway. And the ones that you'll feel belonging with. So just I hope that refugee kids will share their stories and be vulnerable. And that is probably, to me, the biggest channel to fitting in or feeling comfortable is just being who you are and sharing that vulnerability. And, and that's how you connect and I think start to feel like you belong somewhere. That's really beautiful. Can you give us a list of three unexpected places people must visit in whatever, whichever place that you would call home? It could be D.C., it could be Ohio, it could be Detroit, it could be Lebanon. Where should people go and not miss? Well, while I do live between D.C. and L.A. right now, you're right, I call a couple places home. I think since we're talking about my childhood, hometown was in my head. And I grew up in a town of only 3,000 people with like two stoplights. So there is not a lot to see. But I was thinking about some of the fun things that if you're ever driving on I-75 in western Ohio, you can get right off the exit and get to Ada, Ohio. And there is a Wilson football factory there. There is just one factory. And they make, fun fact, the NFL football is the only place in America that makes the footballs that go to the NFL. 
my hometown is home to the only remaining U.S. Wilson football factory. So on the Super Bowl, my neighbors stitch together all of those footballs. It's a very, it's a, it's a local pride issue. I would also say go to our public library there. It's near and dear to my heart because reading was such an inspiration and I think a reason that I wanted to go near and far in the world. My family didn't actually travel and they wanted to kind of keep us home. And by reading and really taking out hundreds of books in the library, I was inspired to overcome my fears and travel and see the world and eventually leave my little hometown. But that was just the power of books. And that came from a little public library across the street from my childhood home. And then, you know, there's a little university where my dad worked, which is what got us there in the first place. And there's a beautiful, you know, art building that doesn't get a ton of attention, but has some really secretly beautiful things that I hope people, if they ever end up in Ada, Ohio, will visit. I love that. It's beautiful. So what dish reminds you most of home? Kusa. Always. Kusa is my comfort food. We do the lamb and rice. I know you can do a vegetarian, but we do a lamb and rice stuffed squash in the cinnamon tomato sauce. And I, it is all things good at home to me. Yes. Is it going to be in the new cookbook? It sure is. Amazing. (laughs) My final question is what is a book or a series of books that you loved and recommended that you've gifted to people or you recommend people to read? I think, you know, related to our conversation, COVID was such a hard time to be a leader that I really felt like I needed to start reading and reassessing leadership and what I learned in that experience to make me better leader in the future. So I had never been one, I had never read any of the Brene Brown books, but I started. I also got a career coach in the last year to really help me work through this experience. And so I have been reading and have gifted Dare to Lead to a couple people. And I, I do highly recommend it for any leader. So again, I know everybody already knows that, but it is still in the front of my brain right now. I give my managers the Zingerman's business books. And I don't know if you know Zingerman's from Ann Arbor, but they started off as a Jewish deli near the University of Michigan's campus. They've become kind of like a Michigan treasure. You can order food online now. They have delis and and a lot of derivative restaurants in Ann Arbor. But I really admire their business style. The New York Times has written about it. Their philosophy is brilliant. And they have a series of books from customer service and hospitality to business management and leadership. And I give that series of books to my managers with the options to take one of their workshops. So if you're looking for some quick reads on like business and management 101, Zingerman's collection is great. And then I always try to get people to read like Water for Chocolate. If you have not read it, it's the story of a a woman who's struggling with unrequited love and cries into the food as she makes it. It's the magical realism that then the food that goes to everyone else, they fall in love once they eat her food. And I always, this goes to my point about experience and design and energy. And I really do feel like that's put into the food and love and true, you know, joy are put into the food. It tastes better. And like Water for Chocolate makes that point in a very extreme way. So it's a really fun book and a beautiful movie if you have time. I mean, Dare to Lead is something that also we've read together as a group and we're all Brene Brown, real big fans of her work. And it really helped me as well to think about leadership and to think about how to be a better leader and how to actually try to be better at your work and to inspire others to do better as well and to be vulnerable in our own work. So I'm really glad that we have that kind of connection. Rose, I have to tell you, this has been such an inspiring conversation. I'm just so happy that you're on the podcast. I want to thank you again for everybody listening. Rose has done so much for Karam Foundation over the years. Her and her team have hosted us in the restaurant for fundraisers. We've been a fundraiser with Anisa Halu. We just did a fundraiser at Maidan in the alleyway for World Refugee Day in D.C., which was an amazing experience involving so many people and vendors. And everybody was always treating us with so much generosity and hospitality and with open arms and really coming into the mission and supporting us. We're always so grateful to you and everybody on your team. Well, I really appreciate that. But thank you guys for all of your work and for all the inspiration. We are happy to help in any little way, but we also just get a lot of joy from working with you. So thank you for having me today. This conversation has set me off on the right foot for the day. So thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and for having me. And I can't wait to see you in person again soon. Bye. Bye. 
I really enjoyed my conversation with Rose. Isn't she incredible? I deeply connected with how she found her way to being herself through her childhood experiences. This reminded me of a conversation I had with 17-year-old Yemeni refugee Mazen when I was at Karam House, Istanbul. Mazen spoke to me about his last day of school. He's so articulate and so brilliant. Here's my conversation with Mazen. Hi, Mazen. Welcome to Belongings, the podcast. I'm so happy to be with you here today in Karam House, Istanbul, and to speak with you. Hello, Lena. It's my pleasure. So we've known each other a really long time. I'm so proud of all of your accomplishments and your journey, which I'm excited to share with our audience about how much you've gone through in the past few years in terms of studying and accomplishments. So we're going to get into all of that. And I would love for you to share your story with our audience because it is very inspiring. And so I wanted to start by first asking you to say your name, your age, and where you're from. Right. Hello, everyone. I am Mazen Naji. I'm 18 years old. I'm from Yemen. I moved to Morocco, then I came to Turkey. So there might be a bit of confusion that I'm Moroccan. And how long have you lived in Turkey? Like three and a half years. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about what home and belonging means to you? All right. Uh, this is a question that I struggled with uh, to get an answer for it. And I still have no answer for it, actually. I used to think that belonging, uh, I belong to my home, my home in Yemen. That was what I used to think. Then after that, my thinking for this question have developed. I started to think that, no, I belong to a certain field that I love. Maybe the karate that I used to play in Morocco five years ago, or maybe to the school. But I assure you that school is not the place I ever felt belong to. Then after that, on a long walk by the sea, I thought about it uh, very much. It was actually yesterday. So uh, yesterday was like my graduation from high school. Usually I take the bus to home, but not this day. This is the day I said, <laughs> you, you spent like five years in uh, high school. It's like more of, uh, than you should have spent in high school. So now you have to struggle like walking uh, now to home just to make it a, a memory. So I started thinking about this. And what comes to mind is a workshop was with uh, Nisli here in Karam. It was about storytelling. And uh, at this workshop, it was the question of uh, where do you belong? Exactly as this question. And there was an answer from my colleague. His name is Ibrahim. And uh, he started telling about his home country. And uh, everyone started to cry that day. So there was like a tick point where I started to think about this and uh, I told him that day that maybe your homeland is maybe like something you should grieve about that you dislocated from that place. But always your home, I pointed at his shoulders and uh, this is your home, like you are your home. But thinking about this yesterday, no, I didn't know what does that mean, what that really meant, as I know what it means now. The concept of belonging and home continues to evolve for you and change. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I want to ask you your journey from Yemen to Turkey. I know you had a long journey. If you can tell our audience a little bit about that journey. I was born in 2003. At eight years old, I moved uh, to Morocco for uh, education of my parents. So at the first 10 months, I was in Rabat, but then we moved to the north of Morocco and I spent there three years. Then I went back to Rabat for another three years. Then we decided to move to Turkey in 2018. So I wanted to ask you if you want to talk about a specific project that you'd like to highlight and tell us a little bit about that was special to you in some way. Yeah, sure. So one of my uh, project was uh, with my teammate. It was about making a game for kids with special needs. Mm -hmm. We started with this project. Um, it was a car simulator, which we didn't finish. But still, this was one of my, um, I would say, changing of views projects. This was one of them. Another one was uh, Karam Clubs. 
my friends and I started uh, a team where we read famous literature of the world and started presenting them to the people. So I know that you've done a lot of things outside of Kerem House, um, maybe in the context of your school or outside of your school, if you want to tell us a little bit of some of these initiatives or things that you've been either started yourself or that you've been part of. Yeah, sure. I am basically with Karam House, and I joined some other courses, courses which uh, one of them is um, a course about critical and creative thinking. And um, I'm thinking of using my skills of graphic designing and storytelling and marketing with my own business, but I didn't start yet, given to some conditions, but uh, I will start soon. And this all is all our assets for the cause I am willing to dedicate myself for, because it's hard to start something or to give a message to society, especially I heard from people who did that with no profit. Well, like I have to first establish myself, uh, my mind, and sure to have the capital for this. That's really, really inspiring. And I love the idea that you take these kinds of concepts and, you know, kind of exploring all these ways of of ideas and forming and running into a problem and then solving it. And that's really, really amazing because honestly, that's kind of how things work in life as well. Um, so I'm very excited to see what you build next and what you create next. And, uh, and I'd love to hear more about what you make in the future. So I'm going to be asking some of like the rapid fire questions we ask at the end of the, our interviews. And if there's anything else you'd like to talk about, obviously the floor is open. The first question is, I'd like you to complete this sentence. Home is where? A home is where I feel safe. If you had to leave your home today and know that you can only take one thing with you for a memory of your home, what would that object be? I think I have a different perspective of this because I believe that uh, the place I belong to is myself. So where I'm ever going, I am at home. That's so beautiful. I know that you're a big reader and you're actually helping Karam House with our library. So thank you for that. And so I wanted to ask you as a lover of books and uh, somebody who's reading a lot, what kind of book that you have found yourself recommending to your friends or what book should everybody read? In general, I would say just discover or read different kind of books and know what is uh, best for you. So what's your favorite book? The Prince by Machiavelli. That's a good one. I want to ask, is there a certain food or dish that reminds you of home? Maybe my soul is part of it belonging to the home I was in, in Yemen. Maybe some dish uh, from there, which called uh, Akda, which is made in a special tradition way. But this is for the part I belong to Yemen. That's such a great answer. I have two questions. First of all, what is Akda? It's the kind of plate it's made of. They have tagine in Morocco. It's mm -hmm. kind of the same uh, plate they are made of. It's basically some chicken, mashed chicken, like in small uh, parts, and it tastes very good. Anything comes with this plate, it tastes good. Okay, I'm gonna yeah. look for that. And then my last question is something intrigued me about your answer. I mean, I love your answer of, you know, you have this spirit of being able to find that kind of, like you have a spirit of finding belonging or finding, um, some sense of place wherever you go because you're holding yourself and that you're basically your constant is yourself. And so I was wondering, do you think, you, know, you might not have an answer, but do you think that this kind of spirit that you have is something that you were born with or is this something that you developed because of the circumstances of your life of moving around so much? I believe that um, generally in our journey, maybe, maybe we have a goal, that a goal maybe that will change, right? Maybe someone who doesn't know what is his goal or doesn't know that he have to have a goal or maybe someone believe that he doesn't uh, need to have a goal. But still in our life or my life, I have that vision and uh, I have some obstacles in my path, starting from Yemen to Morocco to Turkey. Maybe I am going to another country after establishing myself here. 
but I still have the obstacles. Maybe I don't know that these are some obstacles or at some point I didn't know that uh, this is a journey of mine. We all have a jewel inside us and this jewel by every station is keeping evolving. It is what makes me continue with the obstacles and the pressure I am having. Yeah, I know it's very difficult. Like challenges are always ahead. What are your dreams for the future? What do you think you want to do? Or what are you looking at uh, doing um, in your near future? For example, if you tell me how is your plan for the finances you are making, two years ago, I can't tell you how is uh, that going to be because uh, I had no idea. But what I was sure of that I'm working on it. I'm working on my skills mm -hmm. and knowledge for it. But now I, I can give you a certain something like tell you this is what I am doing. What is your vision for the future? I can't tell you exactly what uh, I am going to do. But what I can tell you that... <laughs> I am willing to give uh, value from myself to myself, to my friends, to my bigger community. I have no doubt that that's what you're going to do. And I'm very excited and looking forward to seeing what you do in the future and look forward to always talking to you when I come. I'm so proud of your journey and you make us all very proud here at Karam House. And I wish you all the best of luck. And I have no doubt that you are going to find great success and you're going to be able to serve the community in a meaningful way. So thank you so much, Mazen, for all your time today. And thank you for all of your wonderful and deep intellectual answers. Thank you very much, Lena. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lena Sergi Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode researched by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleiman Faour. Music is Inni Mneeh by Mashru' Layla. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.